This morning's lesson from the Gospels is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 56. Please stand for the lesson from the Gospels. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them coming and going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples said, came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and gave, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The word of the Lord. This morning, I'm going to invite Taylor Wagon up for us to open up and expound God's word for us. Thanks, Taylor. Glad we're good? Everybody good here? All right. Um, I, I was trying to pick a book that basically everybody would know, and I settled on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a pretty sure bet in a crowd like this. Um, in this book, which you, you know, uh, a small girl pushes to the back of a wardrobe, you know, past all the jackets and all the mothballs and all the old fur coats and everything, and she finds herself in another world. She's initially a little confused, right? She goes through the jackets, and all of a sudden, she's in some place with snow and blankets and trees, all the stuff, right? It's very, very odd. There's a, there's a fawn, Tumnus. 
Um, it's, it's a confusing experience. Eventually, her siblings join her. There's all four of these kids. They're in this strange world. And they have talking animals. They have, what else? What else happens in the line, the wish, and the wardrobe? What's in this world? It's always winter. Why is it always winter? Because there's an evil witch who controls the entire place, who incidentally makes a pattern of attempting to invite them over for a nice play date, where she's going to kill them, right? Uh, there's a regal lion who uh, then suffers on their behalf and, and dies, and then comes back and leads them to victory. That part's kind of a good, good happy ending there. Um, there's absolutely no parental support. <laughs> These guys are fully on their own, man. You are determining your own bedtimes for certain at this point. Uh, and they return home, and all is well. And, you know, they're, they're, they're wiser and more mature as a result of these adventures. Now, this is a story that we read to children. And we tuck them in, and we say, good night, sleep tight, we'll talk in the morning, right? That is amazing. Children, do you have any idea what would happen if you pushed through your own closet, past all the old ski clothing, and you got to the back. What would be there? A wall. Absolutely nothing, right? Or you're insane and we'd lock you up. Um, But if, by some magical chance, you pushed through old ski clothing and got into a world where there were talking animals, a witch who wanted to kill you, no parents to help, um, did we mention the talking animals? You know what you would end up with when you came back? Counseling. That's what would happen. It is different to read about something than it is to live something. I, I, I think if you actually lived through what you know, Lucy and that whole gang went through, it would be a lot. That would be a lot for any human to endure. But in a story, it's the kind of thing like you think, like, oh, that's great. I'm going to fall asleep now, and I'm going to be happy. Because a story gives us the ability to experience something with just like a little tiny bit. It doesn't have the full depth of experience is actually going through all of that. Now we're talking about that today because we're going to read about the disciples and their failure to understand something that Jesus wants them to get. And we read it and we're like, man, I totally have this whole thing nailed. What's wrong with these bozos? But you got to cut them a little slack because it's one thing to read about it. It's a whole other thing to actually live it. Very, very different this way. Um, we're going to try to bridge that gap a little bit and then maybe take it a different direction. So we were just reading this part in, in Mark 6, um, and we're going to focus in specifically on one little bit where Jesus is walking on the water in that little part of the story. I'm going to read it to you again. Um, this is Mark 6, starting in verse 45. Okay, immediately, he, that's Jesus, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. God, we ask that you would uh, illuminate us through your scriptures. Allow us to think true thoughts, um, that they would translate to how we feel about um, your world and our place in it. Please give us truth. 
Amen. All right, a uh, short version of this story. Jesus has been doing all kinds of things in this chapter. Um, they had just withdrawn across trying to get alone for a little bit in the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd follows them in the middle of just nowhere. So they have compassion on the crowd. Jesus is feeding and healing and teaching and doing all these things. Actually, not feeding and not healing, just teaching. And then it, eventually everybody gets hungry. This is like a reality for humans. You go on an airplane, and if you're going further than Dallas, they will throw pretzels at you, right? Because otherwise, everybody gets kind of angry. People get really grumpy if you don't give them something to eat. Parents know this. Like, every mom has, like, 13 snacks squirreled away somewhere in arm's reach at every point of the day. Uh, I remember being, like, just dumbfounded by that at some point in my teens. Uh, but this is, this is real. Like, so Jesus is going to, he's going to feed these people. And there, there's nowhere to buy food, and, you know, you have all this stuff. And they, they miraculously feed 5,000 men and potentially the other people that are around, uh, which is cool. That's amazing. Then he sends the disciples back across the water. They're going to try to get back away, and he stays to pray, and then, you know, there it is. They're stuck. They're rowing. Any of you guys spend time on water before? This is not a big water place. You know, we have what we call a lake that's really a river. You know, let's not, let's not kid ourselves. You've been, you ever try rowing a boat into wind? It's awful. Uh, you know, the only way to make it worse is to row a boat into, like, tide. Uh, I, I, yeah, You're not going anywhere. So Jesus sees this. They're, they're really struggling. They're, they're, they're not making it across. Jesus decides just to, to walk. He's just going to walk on the water. Now, as the reader, you should have some questions here. as to Why exactly is it going like this? This is one of the fun things. You read, you read the Gospels, you read about Jesus. And why did he do it this way becomes one of the questions that you hit over and over and over. Why does Jesus walk? At the point that he's walking on the water, he could fly, right? He could have just flown past the disciples. He could have walked under the water. I mean, we're already in the realm of the miraculous, right? You just, you're picking one. So he decided to walk on the water. Cool. Um, and then... <laughs> First, fix the walk in the water. Second thing, he was going to pass them by. Like, <laughs> like I, I mean, insult to injury here, right? He's just like, he was just going to say, adios, I'll see you guys on the other side. I hope you're getting some exercise. Watch for blisters. Peace out. Uh, this is just amazing. I, I, love, I love the way this story goes. Um, two other little details um, for those of you who are textual weirdos. Um, notice the transition word at the beginning in verse 45. Um, that's immediately. If you're reading through Mark, you will be overwhelmed by how many times he uses the word immediately. Mark is the shortest gospel. Um, we could make an argument that it's maybe even a little shorter than it actually is. And, and, and this transition word he uses just over and over and over. The whole thing is organized as like this rapid downhill starting and moving down to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And so everything just like gathers speed and it's supposed to have this sense of urgency immediately, immediately, immediately. All over in Mark. Um, enjoy that. Just if you, if you read and you think about that, it's fun. Another little detail about Mark. Um, Mark traditionally is recording the story of Peter. So when you read Mark, you're really getting what, what Mark has interviewed Peter and he's, he's kind of collected Peter's stories. Uh, now, there's a complex lineage around this, but, but think Peter's version of the story is like a rough outline on Mark. And you'll notice Peter goes out of his way in the book to make himself look like an idiot. 
So the reputation we have is Peter being kind of like, oh, Peter's always saying the stupid thing or doing the wrong thing. That's because Peter is telling his own story and trying to show how foolish he feels and how dumb he was. Like, there's so much humility in the way that he presents himself and then locks in for all time. So in the Matthew version of this story, something else happens where Peter says, if that's you, call me to you and I will walk on the water with you. And Mark doesn't include that because I, I, I don't know why, <laughs> honestly, but I like to speculate that Peter cuts out anything that might make him look a little bit more special and includes all the things that might make him look a little more dumb. And the fact that he's the one who gets out of the boat and goes to Christ, that's, that's not included in the Mark version. Speculation makes sense. I like it. If it helps you when you read it, do it. All right, what we're going to look at today specifically after all this little kind of getting up to speed, is that we're going to focus on the disciples' difficulty in understanding Jesus' power. Verse 51. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, what was it that they were supposed to understand? What should the loaves have taught them? Well, at core, they don't understand who Jesus is. And therefore, they don't understand the power that is possessed by Jesus. So we're in a section, this whole chapter is all like power demonstrations, miraculous signs. Um, and, and the disciples still have not fully internalized what is happening and who Jesus is. That Jesus is, in fact, God become man. And this is building into their, their moment of understanding, which will happen here in the next few chapters, where they're like, oh, we get it. And it kind of culminates with the transfiguration in a lot of ways. So we'll see that when we get there. But this is like, Jesus having all of the power to solve all of these problems is like just like it's slowly dawning on them as to how this is going to go. Now, and, and that's what they're getting out of this. What we want, what I want us to have, our goal, I want to maintain our belief in the power of God despite its distance in our lives. So I'm going to make a case that we may feel like we understand this, you know, in the sense that we're the reader, not the liver of the situation, so it's a little easier. But there are other obstacles we have to understanding the power of God and, and who he is. So, uh, one other note here before we truly hit some of this content. Um, there's, a, there's a comment that says hardened um, at the end of 52. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Uh, I don't think that's in the same sense of Pharaoh, you know, where God hardens his heart. This is more just like they have not yet softened to truly understand the data yet. So they're being presented with Jesus. They're spending time with Jesus. And it hasn't yet seeped through, you know, their, their base state so that they can understand this yet. So there you go. I, I feel for the disciples on this stuff hugely. Like, uh, you know, Peter here recording and telling this stuff. Mark's writing it down. All they're like, you know, you interview these people and you hear this stuff. And they must have just looked back and felt so dumb. You know, these times when, like, you, even it happens when you watch a movie, you know, and, like, the big reveal at the end, you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm such an idiot. I should have seen this, like, in Act 1 or whatever. And you go back in your life, and you think, like, you have these moments. You're like, oh, my gosh, what was I thinking? I, I should have seen this a long time ago. How did I miss that? And here they are with, like, oh, yeah, we had, like, those three awesome years with Jesus. And how many of those years did we burn just being idiots? Like, oh, it's tough. Okay, um, but that is, that is part of our advantage. We're the reader, right? So we get to see things with a little less intensity, I guess, in some ways. It's, it's just, it's easier for us. All right, so number one, what should they have understood? They should have understood Christ's power, um, and therefore, where Mark is going to take us, this is going to become his divinity. 
Um, so Christ's power is revealed. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. I'm just going to do a quick survey. The very first pericope in here, verses 1 through 6, Jesus goes to Nazareth, his home village, and the comment there in 5 and 6, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Okay, well, this first little bit in here is interesting. I really wanted to include it because it seems fair. Uh, Christ's power is not going to be shown in all situations. And there is a pattern of linking power demonstrations to belief. Uh, And and we're not given exactly why. 100%, I'm going to speculate for you because I get to and you're stuck listening to me. Uh, So... Miracles are absolutely a form of revelation, right? They reveal things about who God is and what his power is. So they, 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 miracles are always a form of revelation. In this case, they're showing who Jesus is and they're saying things about God. There's a pattern that increased revelation means increased condemnation. Um, and you can trace this through Scripture. It happens with Moses. It happens like where you'll find a lot of the times of large supernatural judgment will also happen around supernatural positive activity, even into Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. So you'll see increased revelation means in, increased judgment. So restricting the supernatural in the presence of unbelief may counterintuitively be an act of compassion. Do with that what you will. Jesus performs some miracles. They're just not as many. And then we move on. Okay, so verses 7 through 13. You go from Nazareth. Jesus sends out the 12 to go and do his thing on a broader spectrum, right? They go out two by two. This is to do some things. And he called the 12. This is verse 7. I'm going to go 7, 12, 13, and 30 here. He called the, the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed them with, uh, uh, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then there's a, there's a comment, not, not verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. So Christ is shown here as having power over what we would call natural and supernatural worlds. This is over sickness and even over demonic activity. More significantly, this is delegated power. So Jesus doesn't even have to be there to get the job done. He can go by proxy. It's like when, when you tell your kid to go and you know, make a cup of coffee. You have the power to make a cup of coffee by proxy. So much greater, right? So this is, this is amazing. Now, this is delegated power over sickness and over demons. Okay, then verse 14, super downer. Um, the, this whole narrative is about the death of John the Baptist. We're going to skip that because it's sad. We're going to come back to that, actually, in just a minute. Um, and then you go to verse 30, uh, and that's the 5,000 fed. Jesus is teaching in a desolate place. He finds them. He teaches them. He, he turns five loaves and two fishes into enough food for over 5,000 people. So we have now conquered sickness. We have conquered demonic activity. We have conquered hunger. About the only thing left is to go beat up some Romans, right? We're doing, we're doing amazingly. So then Jesus is walking on water, right? He sees that they were making headway. Not real well, and the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Okay, with Christ having power to make food, to cast out demons, to heal the sick, what are you going to be afraid of? Jesus has power over 
just about anything you could possibly want. The only times you're going to be afraid is when you're not around Him. Now for us reading it, we get the point of that story really easily, right? You're like, oh man, if Jesus was walking by and I was stuck on Mopac traffic and he was like walking around the, tra- the cars just like cruising, I'd be like, yay, you know, it's Jesus. Of course he could do that. We're the readers. We didn't actually live this. Uh, and and that's, that's fine. This is obviously quite different for the disciples to understand because they were actually stuck in the middle of the night on a boat rowing into the wind they're probably exhausted. I mean, I, if you keep me up till 3 a.m. without rowing, I'm, I'm a little off. A lot off. Uh, and and their, their brains are probably melted at this point to see Jesus walk on the water. That is, that is a lot. Okay, what's our difficulty then? I think the difficulty for us in believing in the power of God is... Not the same because it's not the the lived experience and the confusion of like, this is lived experience that's so different from anything else I've ever done. I've never seen somebody walk on water. I've never been this tired at 3 a.m. rowing into nowhere. And, you know, this is like just overwhelmed. No, for us, we're reading. We don't get overwhelmed. You know, the the witch chases the people around. We're like, cool, tuck you in, go to bed. No big deal. Animals talk. Right? When you you read, we, we don't have those problems. However, we have the opposite problem. For us, we are very distant from all of these things. And it's our very distance that makes it difficult for us. We so often don't experience the power of God. We read about it, and it's easy for us to read about and accept, but we don't live it. We don't feel it in the same way. In fact, much of what we do live is defeat. Where is the power of God? How could a loving God allow this if he has power? That is much more the experience of day-to-day life for us. Okay, Fortunately, we can, we can talk about that too. Um, so Jesus is God. He has all power. We can nod and understand in ways the disciples can't. But we have to acknowledge that problems remain unfixed. Take a step back um, into Mark 6 in the section we skipped. So Herod Antipas, who's one of King Herod's sons, if you really want to lose your mind in ancient Near Eastern history, try to trace a Herodian family tree. It is atrocious, right? So anyway, his half-brother married somebody who was named Herodias. You're only allowed to have one name, I guess, in this family. Um, And then because Herod marries Herodias, John the Baptist is like, whoa, 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 you can't be doing that. That's not cool. And she obviously doesn't like that kind of condemnation, so she makes Herod lock him up in jail, and she wants him dead. But Herod's like, oh, I don't want to kill him. He seems like a nice fellow. Uh, and eventually, verse 21 happens here. Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. That's kind of like ancient Near Eastern polite, by the way. You're not supposed to ask for half the kingdom. It's like, you know, I would give you just about anything. Please. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. John is Jesus' cousin. Simple question here. Uh, where is Jesus' power in this story? If he's willing to walk on the water, why is he, why is he, not, why is he not there for John the Baptist? John the Baptist is a, a righteous man. He is a prophet. He has been fulfilling the calling of God in his life to a T. He is related to Jesus. He loves Jesus. He knows Jesus. Jesus loves him. Didn't John need help more than the people who were going to miss a meal? You have to say yes on all these fronts. I think that is one of the big obstacles we have to believing in the power of God. Um, the type of experiences we have where we wonder, where, where is God's power? So I want us to look this in the eye. Um, this is not a sermon with a clever solution for this one. Uh, I would like us to incorporate that problem into our belief. God's power does not mean a life without problems. God as God, has all power, but he clearly does not use his power to right every wrong. Jesus can heal people. He has power over sickness. But there are people who die of disease, Christians included. Jesus can feed people, but there are children who starve, Christians included. Okay, uh, takeaways. What do I want for you guys to think about as we leave? Number one, I want you to read about Jesus' power and to believe it. I want you to start there. Even with like, the, the shallow belief that we get as readers, I want us to do as much as we can to believe that. Jesus walked on water. He fed people. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. We have to believe that Jesus, as God, has the power of God. And God has unlimited power. It is part of his nature. That is an obvious thing for us to say. It is probably an obvious thing to believe, but because we are removed from it, it is quite difficult, it turns out. Secondly, I want you to maintain that belief, your belief in the power of God through suffering and through difficulty. Now, I'm not trying to say that we are only going to have suffering and difficulty. We are not always removed from God's power. God may miraculously remove cancer from a loved one, uh, he may protect you in a car accident. He may do any number of wonderful things to demonstrate his power in your life. And I, I'm, I'm not worried about you believing in God's power when those moments happen. In fact, you will find an overwhelming appreciation for God's power in those moments. I'm worried about us believing in God's power when everything falls apart and we think, where is God now? We have to believe that God's power will not be fully revealed until his kingdom comes. The promise to wipe every tear away is in revelation at the end. It is not until then. When we read this stuff, remember that Jesus sent the disciples to labor away the night, rowing 
through the middle of the night when they would rather be sleeping and getting nowhere on this boat when clearly he, he could have just had them all walk. Difficulty is a part of his plan. Jesus allows John the Baptist to be beheaded after you know, languishing away in prison. That is part of his plan. But his power is still presented as complete and absolute. And our job is to believe with endurance until it is fully manifested. And may God help us to hold on to that belief when he allows us to suffer. That is, that is the heart that I wish I could convey to you for this sermon. Um, Daniel did me the favor of reading these notes uh, back and forth a whole lot. Um, and he made a request. Uh, so we're going to add a little postscript on here. Um, I get kind of emotional about some of this stuff, so I was going to leave you with this like emotional <laughs> thing. But uh, this, is, this is very appropriate. So, okay. This leads very, very absolutely to the cross. Yes? Uh, the power of Christ and its absence in life is most acutely felt and presented at the cross of Christ. Right? This is, we, we are to believe that Jesus is, the, is God himself. He is God become man. He has all of the power of God. And he goes to the cross and displays death and suffering. And that is what the power of God looks like at the cross. Jesus, with all power, shows none of it in his time of need. The absolute manifestation of power deferred. And it is, it is for a purpose, Right? The suffering of Christ is, is his momentous achievement, what he came to do. He came to suffer and to die. Right? And that is done through the absence of power, through allowing, allowing his sacrifice for us. That is suffering that is used by God to accomplish our salvation. And so I, I, don't, I, I don't want to make the mistake of saying that we will always see a reason for the lack of the power of God. When we want to see the power of God to deliver us, we will not always know why that is there. Right? We can say sometimes God says that he uses, he uses that for us to teach things or for us to, to magnify him in weakness or whatever. But we know absolutely that Jesus went through that more, and we do know why that was. And it was because of us. Right? We confess our sins on a weekly basis here so that we can remember that we are in desperate need of God's suffering on our behalf, the deferring of his power so that we would be redeemed by him. And that's, that's wonderful. Right, I'm going to pray for us. God, we, we struggle to believe what we read uh, deeply. We believe it casually. We ask that you would change us that you would use your spirit to illuminate us, to transform us, to sanctify us, to let us uh, understand you more and more. God, we ask that you would be patient with our weakness and with our foolishness. God, we ask that you would help us to hold on to these beliefs um, when things are difficult, when things don't make sense. We ask that our belief in your power and... Um, and your ultimate manifestation of your plan would be sure that we would have that as hope. God, and we are grateful that you were willing to put aside your power to suffer in our place. How wonderful that is. Amen.